science you can use. The Dr. Joe Show on CJAD 800. There's antimony, arsenic, aluminum, selenium, and hydrogen, and oxygen, and nitrogen, and rhenium, and nickel, neodymium, neptunium, germanium, and iron, americium, ruthenium, uranium, europium, zirconium, lutetium, vanadium, and lanthanum, and osmium, and astatine, and radium, and gold, protactinium, and indium, and gallium, and iodine, and thorium, and thulium, and thallium. Welcome aboard. I'm Joe Schwartz. I direct McGill's Office for Science and Society. And uh, as I keep telling you, we have the mandate of separating sense from nonsense and keeping you up to date on what is happening in the world of science. We invite your questions and uh, also answers to my questions. The way to do that is to give us a call at 514-790-0800 or text at 514-800. Let's get the show on the road with a couple of questions. In the late 1800s, dentists would rub a patient's gums to lessen the pain of a procedure with a solution, the active ingredient of which was extracted from a plant. What was that ingredient? So with what did the dentists rub the gums of a patient? before they were going to undertake a procedure. And uh, the active ingredient in that solution was extracted from a plant. What was that ingredient? And I'll give you another one. Nisin, N-I-S-I-N, is an antibiotic. It's used as a food preservative. You'll often see it in dairy foods and in meat products. How is it produced? How is nisin? N-I-S-I-N, an antibiotic used as a food preservative. How is that produced? All right. 514-790-0800. 514-800 is the text address. This week, which was the third week in August, in August, the third week in October, uh, one of my favorite times of the year. Why? Uh, well, the weather still seems to be pretty nice, but that's not it. It is annual national chemistry week it's an event that is organized by the american chemical society with the goal of raising the public's awareness of the value of chemistry in daily life and i think you can appreciate why uh, i look upon this uh, favorably because this is something that uh, i've been doing for a very long time trying to instruct people on the wonders of chemistry in their daily life So these days, uh, during National Chemistry Week, uh, we as educators are encouraged to go out and talk to the public, in many cases, perform demonstrations. In fact, uh, our uh, outreach group here at McGill, uh, all day today in the Automized Chemistry Building, has been performing uh, various kinds of demonstrations uh, for the public. We're also told to try to write articles, Uh, that are designed to demystify chemistry. Because these days, admittedly, many people look upon chemistry with a wary eye. When asked for a word they would associate with chemistry, you know what kind of responses we get? Uh, Difficult, dangerous, scary, toxic, boring. Those are the the words, and and, uh, I really get uh, upset by that because the more appropriate responses would be useful or practical, relevant, uh, important. 
Why do we study chemistry and why do we promote the public's understanding of chemistry? Because believe it or not, it plays a role in your life every day. Chemistry is what allows us to understand why people on blood thinners can take Tylenol, but they cannot take aspirin. Why you can't mix bleach with toilet bowl cleaner. Why glue sticks. How is it that the queen bee attracts drones on her nuptial flight? Why do we worry about lead in tap water? Uh, these are the kind of questions that, that chemistry addresses. And these days, you know, you pick up a magazine and you pick up a news or a, or a newspaper, or you listen to, to me on the radio, <laughs> you will very often be accosted by terms that at first you probably don't understand, like biodegradable, genetically modified, phthalates, probiotics, antioxidants, endocrine disruptors, all of these things. Uh, if you don't understand the difference between polyester and rayon, between gluten and lectin, or between aspartame and sucralose, well, then you need to look to chemistry for answers. And furthermore, these days, of course, our life is clouded by worries, worries of all kinds. Some of them, of course, very significant, uh, such as worries about COVID and how we can catch it and what the vaccine can and cannot do. But there are also worries about trace residues of, of uh, uh, glyph glyphosate in our cereal, which may not be relevant at all. Well, chemistry will also put you on the right path in terms of what to worry about and what not. For me, uh, an understanding of chemistry is, is key to unlocking the mysteries of life. And uh, you can appreciate why, you know, I'm, I'm troubled when after giving a presentation somewhere, and, you know, I, I do that quite often at libraries and various conferences and in schools. And I can't tell you how many times I've, I've been approached by people after I've given a talk when they somehow feel the need to unburden themselves and tell me with some sort of perverse pride that chemistry was the only course they ever failed in high school or that organic chemistry scared them from any further encounters with the subject. And this is, this is very bothersome for me because um, <laughs> obviously I, I think this is uh, a certainly a tainted view of, uh, of, of chemistry. Uh, now I do understand that some of them may have been disappointed with their experience in uh, high school or even in in, in college, because uh, unfortunately, often chemistry is is poorly taught, and when that happens, it can really turn students off. And that's a real shame, because it's so easy to make the subject interesting and relevant. All one has to do to change boring and irrelevant to fascinating and practical is relate the concepts introduced to, to everyday phenomena like the medications we take, the, the nutrients in our food, the, the components of cosmetics and plastics and dyes and pesticides, pollution, climate change. All of these have chemical uh, connections. And I can tell you that whenever I, I, I teach, and you know I, I teach large classes, and uh, right now, believe it or not, I have a class of over 2,000 students. It's a course called Drugs, 
It's the uh, largest uh, university course in Canada. And so obviously a lot of thought has to go into uh, what um, we do in this course. And whenever I, I teach anything, I always think, why is it that the student should know this? Because chemistry is not just an intellectual exercise. One can argue that mathematics is. Um, you learn mathematics because it teaches you a way of thinking, uh, of rational thought, hopefully. Chemistry is not exactly like that. Chemistry is, is extremely applied. It's very useful in our daily lives because of all the issues that I mentioned, all the, all the connections. So whenever I decide that I'm going to teach something, I always think about why is it that I need to do this? What is it that they're going to get out of it? What is this, the relevance? And if I can't think of any connection, then I, I don't teach it. Now, it doesn't mean that everything has to be immediately connected. For example, when I used to teach general chemistry, which I don't do anymore because now I teach this large course, if it would you know, teach something about, uh, oh, atomic orbitals or you know, molecular bonding, which at first can be off-putting because a lot of theory. But if you kind of shine the light at the end of the tunnel and tell them, explain to them why it is that they need to learn this, what it will enable them to do, then all of a sudden it becomes more relevant, it becomes more interesting. And also it, it prevents scientific illiteracy. And scientific illiteracy is very troublesome these days because as you know, there are so many quacks and charlatans out there plying their trade. And uh, if you don't have a good enough understanding of, of chemistry or in general of science, then you are at the mercy of these um, uh, charlatans. Anyway, I'll, I'll um, have a couple of other notes uh, about this, uh, about uh, National Chemistry Week that I want to get across. You're listening to The Dr. Joe Show. Okay, just before we get to your uh, texts or calls answering my question, I want to get back a little bit to National Chemistry Week and you know why uh, I like it so much. Uh, scientific illiteracy is something that we have to fight because there's just so much of it out there. I'll give you some examples. There's a magazine ad that I saw that uh, tells people to drink water frequently because, quote, one third of water is oxygen and drinking it will keep you alert. This is total nonsense, of course. Yes, water is H2O. One third of the atoms in a water molecule are oxygen. But that is not the oxygen that the body needs. We do not derive oxygen from water. Oxygen can dissolve in water. Just ask fish about that but we don't break down water to get oxygen. Then there's a, a cookbook that um, has the following quote. People don't want to waste time cooking, so they go to fast food restaurants, but they lose five years of their lives from eating food with chemicals in it. 
Well, all food is made of chemicals. A chemical-free meal would not be a good deal unless you like to dine on a vacuum. Then there was Meryl Streep. Now, I like her, a great actress, but she should stick to acting. Obviously, she's no scientist. She once espoused on national TV, quote, my grandparents didn't need chemicals to grow food. Well, either Meryl comes from some line of magicians or she doesn't realize that all fertilizers are chemicals, be they old-fashioned manure or modern synthetics. Now, there have been even some bizarre cases in courtrooms. There was a, a, a trial in California, uh, and it was all about some gang fight. And anyway, the prosecutor uh, described it as a situation very much like nitrogen meeting glycerin. It was guaranteed that there would be an explosion of violence. Well, he probably had some vague recollections about nitroglycerin being a potent explosive. But nitroglycerin is not made by combining glycerin with nitrogen. Actually, glycerin meets nitrogen all the time, quite peacefully since nitrogen makes up 80% of the air. Then there's that classic, very chilling story of the student who won a prize at a science fair by getting 43 of 50 passersby to sign a petition to ban dihydrogen monoxide because it can be fatal if inhaled, is a major component of acid rain, can be found in tumors of terminal cancer patients. But what is this horrible chemical, dihydrogen monoxide? Of course, that's just the chemical term for water. So you see why we need National Chemistry Week to alert people to the uh, intricacies of chemistry and how useful it can be. All right, well, let's put it to some use. Let's get to uh, back to uh, texts. And I think uh, Gary has uh, answer to my question about dentists and gums. Hello. Gary. Yes, Dr. Hi. Joe. Uh, is it oil of clove? Yes, that's a good answer. To tell you the truth, that's not the question, that's not the answer I had in mind, but that is quite correct. Uh, oil of cloves contains eugenol, which indeed is a mild local uh, anesthetic. I actually had something uh, else in mind, which is a more potent local anesthetic and comes from a plant, sort of a more interesting plant than cloves. Do you know what that might be? Uh, no, I just know I remember as a child, um, they used to, if you had a toothache in that in those days and you couldn't get to a dentist, they used to give you a clove to put on the, yes. the broken yes, tooth. Yes, and it does whatever. work. It would numb it. Anyway, the, the, the plant that I had in mind was the coca plant because that gives us cocaine. And okay. cocaine well, yeah, that, is a very would, potent, but... it's a very that potent would... local anesthetic. And uh, indeed, in the early 1900s, there was a product sold called toothache drops. And it was drops of uh, cocaine. In those that days, of course, that wasn't the, the one cocaine called was not Jiffy, controlled. Was that what? wasn't Jiffy Drops, was it? No, they no. They had a company no. called Jiffy Drops. Yeah. I, I don't know what that was. I haven't heard that. Yeah, it was the same thing. How, they used how to do you spell little, that? Yeah. The cocaine one, it? I'm not surprised, because wasn't cocaine original? Wasn't it used in the original Coca-Cola with the when they used to have the medicine men going around through the western well, town? Well, not exactly. Uh, an extract of uh, the coca plant was used as a flavoring in Coca-Cola, 
I but see. the cocaine was first removed from it. So oh. it's it's a story that goes around that there was cocaine in Coca-Cola, but there actually never was. Well, but there was an like extract Coca. of the coca plant. Yeah, because yeah, they did call it coca was a, cola. You know, the coca plant, the coca plant contains hundreds of compounds, and mm -hmm. some of those were used in flavoring Coca-Cola, but cocaine was not one of them. All right, thanks very much. Okay. Uh, Ariana, I think, has an answer to my Nysen question. Ariana. Yes. Hi. Hi, Dr. Joe. Hi. Um, big fan. And um, actually, just keep it quick, but you spoke at Vanier once, and I'm a nurse now, even though I'm one of those people who thought STEM was never for me. Ten years a nurse. I think that well, it's obviously fermented. it is for you. Well, it's fermented, right? I think. Don't we ferment to get Nysen? I'm not a pharmacology specialist, though. I could be wrong. So... Well, uh, what what would you what what do you mean by ferment? Isn't it lacto fermented, which is why it works on dairy? Mm, anyway, with a guess. Well, you're you're skirting it. You're sort of in the right ballpark. Uh, it is actually uh, extracted from a bacterium. Lactococcus lactis is the bacterium. Oh, and cool. that bacterium actually can be made to grow on milk and cheese. That's where it's cultured, and you can extract nicin from it. And what That's is interesting about that? What is interesting about that is that it is uh, an antibiotic that is used as a food preservative. And that's a rare sort of a situation where you would use an antibiotic. Of course, with antibiotics, we constantly worry about uh, people developing resistance to them, but not in this case, because nicin is never used therapeutically in, in humans. So no question of developing resistance to it. So yes, nicin is, is made from a bacterium. So we get the antibiotic from a bacterium. That's, I'm always learning new things. I love your show, Dr. Joe. Oh, thanks Thank so you. much. Okay. Yeah, it is interesting that, that uh, bacteria can actually produce antibiotics, which are antibacterial. And uh, this is because bacteria, of course, also fight each other. They all want to survive. So some bacteria will produce compounds that are effective at killing other bacteria. So they are indeed antibiotics. All right. So we've had uh, answers to the questions about um, what you rub on a patient's gums, and also about nicin. So uh, we got to pose a couple of other questions. Here we go. Around the year 1800, a peasant woman in Dalmatia threw some withered flowers into a corner. And when she later went to sweep them up, she noted a mass of dead flies around the flowers. And this launched an industry to make an insecticide by growing flowers. What kind of flowers? That's the question. Next, this is a rather simple mathematical question. If you have 367 people in a room, what is the chance of two people having the same birthday? Okay, so you gotta ponder these. Again, for one of them, we go back over 200 years to Dalmatia, where a woman threw some withered flowers into a corner. Later, she went to sweep them up, noted mass of dead flies. Well, that was the beginning of an industry to make an insecticide by growing such flowers. What were these flowers? 
question one, question two, if you have 367 people in a room, what is the chance of two having the same birthday expressed as a percentage? You're listening to The Dr. Joe Show, and we'll be right back. Do you look upon the universe with wonder in your eyes? Do you tingle with attention when you're taken by surprise? If a problem should perplex you, does it put your brain in gear? Then you're ready for adventure on the science frontier. Okay, I think Jean-Pierre has an answer to the question about flowers. Jean-Pierre. Hello, Dr. Joe. My Hi. answer, I don't know if it's right. Perethrin? Well, uh, I'm asking for the name of the flower. Pyrethrins are the compounds right? that are... A, pardon? Pyrethrin. Pyrethrins are the compounds that are extracted from that flower. Okay, the flower as such, uh, I don't know. Uh, I don't know the answer, Joe. Okay, all right. We'll can I, can I make a comment about uh, the... Yeah. the uh, uh, you deplore the fact that people don't know chemistry, that's okay. But I, I'm good with geography and history, and I'm absolutely astonished. At the, uh, sometimes I, I would call the in the morning, and the ignorance of people about history and geography is astonishing. You're absolutely right. You're absolutely that's right. I, I, okay. I constantly bemoan the fact that people don't know history, because that's very important. If you don't know where we've been, you won't know where you're going. History, indeed, is, is very important. Anyway, uh, Sharon texted in the correct answer about the flowers. It's chrysanthemums, and they contain pyrethrins. Those are the compounds that have insecticidal properties. And indeed, there is still today an industry whereby uh, chrysanthemum is extracted. All right. Now, I want to tell you uh, what I think is an interesting story about an ancient coloring known as turkey red, which has nothing to do with turkeys, the, the fowl. Uh, it has to do with a dye that was originally imported into Europe from Turkey. And that was in the 18th century. But uh, uh, the source of this dye is the root of a plant. It's called the matter plant, or rubia tinctorum is the actual name. And long before even Turkey existed as a, as a country, it was cultivated in China and India and Egypt. And uh, fragments of cloths that were dyed with uh, matter uh, were even found in the tomb of Tutankhamun. Anyway, various methods of producing cloth dyed red with matter have been handed down through the ages. And generally they're is documentation of a, of a host of curious steps involved, starting with steeping the fabric in rancid olive oil, soda ash, and sheep dung, treating it with alum, then dyeing in vats of matter extract and bullock's blood. Well, exactly which of these ingredients were critical, that's contentious, but the olive oil and the soda ash were likely functional because these two react together to produce soap. And when it comes to dyeing, it is important that fabrics contain no greasy residues that would prevent the dye from adhering to the fabric. A major step forward in this business was taken in 1831 when French chemist Edmond Frémy reacted olive oil with sulfuric acid. 
and upon neutralizing this solution with lye, he obtained a liquid that had a very soapy feel, and it lathered when mixed with water. He didn't realize it, but it actually made the world's first synthetic detergent. Unlike soap, it did not react with calcium or magnesium in water to produce an insoluble scum, which of course was the bane of dyers. Anyway, the sulfated oil turned out to be adept at removing grease from cloth, and as is often the case with science, spurred efforts to find new and improved versions. Various animal fats and plant oils were reacted with sulfuric acid, with the oil extracted from castor beans proving to be especially useful. Sulfated castor oil was great for treating cloth prior to dyeing, particularly with turkey red, and it was christened turkey red oil. It was embraced by European dyers, but their joy did not last very long. In 1869, German chemists Karl Grabe and Karl Liebermann, working for the chemical company BASF, of course still exists today, and English chemist William Henry Perkin, who you may remember because he was the first one to make mauve, the world's first synthetic dye. Anyway, these guys independently found a way to synthesize alizarin the red component of matter root. And they made it from anthracene, which could be extracted from coal tar. And this made turkey red the first natural dye to be duplicated synthetically. As a result, the matter industry, estimated to be worth about $16 million a year, just a, a, an astounding amount at that time, and it collapsed almost overnight. Synthetic alizarin was cheaper and it was easier to use. So it's amazing how this one chemical discovery just undermined a gigantic industry. And obviously we have, you know, interesting parallels in modern times since then, like, you know, the, the typewriter industry, especially, I mean, being destroyed by word processing and, and computers. Uh, but back then, uh, this was a major event because turkey red was a very widely used dye and uh, the industry that was based on extracting it from the matter root totally was destroyed when alizarin was made synthetically. So another interesting aspect of chemistry that's uh, uh, certainly worthwhile talking about uh, now during... Uh, chemistry week. And this is, you know, what uh, I was mentioning to you that that uh, no matter where we look, you can always find some interesting aspects of, of chemistry. For example, if you want to take a look at licking toads. All right, well, let's lick some toads and see what chemistry is involved there. Uh, back in the 1930s, Sugar cane toads, as they were called, were introduced into Australia from Hawaii. And uh, the idea was that they would control the gray-black beetle, which was a sugar cane pest. And uh, in uh, Hawaii, these toads were quite uh, plentiful, and they were known to eat these beetles. So the Australians thought, gee, it would be great to import these because they had just started a sugar cane, uh, sugar, they started sugar cane plantations in Australia. But there was a problem. 
uh, with the beetles and they were eating the, the sugar cane. So anyway, so they imported the, uh, the toads from uh, uh, Hawaii, about a hundred toads, male and female, and they built a little pond for them, sort of their love pond. And uh, the idea was that the toads would multiply and go out into the sugarcane fields and uh, eat the beetles. But the toads could not get the job done. And they actually became a pest themselves due to their prolific desire to reproduce. Why couldn't they get the job done? Because they were not so keen on hopping out into the sugarcane fields because there was an easier way to get their meals. It turned out that there was something that they had in Australia they didn't have in Hawaii, and that were lights around the sugarcane fields. And uh, the beetles would fly around these lights, they get fried and fell down to the ground where the toads would gather and happily eat them without having to go out into the field to hunt them down. So in any way, they reproduced crazily. A fish breeder even reported that the toads killed his goldfish as they misguidedly tried to mate with them. And what a mental image that is. Think of that, a cane toad trying to mate with a fish. Well, cane toads can secrete the toxic compound bufotenine from a couple of glands behind their eyes when they're attacked by predators. But bufotenine is also a hallucinogen, not a really dangerous one. Australian teenagers at one time took to drinking the slime produced when toads were boiled to try to get a high. And some Canadians followed in their footsteps and they learned a bit of lesson. They purchased a couple of toads from an exotic pet store, licked them, hoping for euphoria. They got hospital beds instead. You're listening to the Dr. Joe Show. We are born to do science. A baby can do it and so can you. We are born to do science. Just figuring out what's true. Okay, Kenny has an answer to the question about the birthdays. You have 367 people in the room. What is the chance that two of them will have the same yes. birthday? Kenny. Yes. Well, what's, what's the, the question chance? again? You have 367 people in a room. What's the question again? What is the chance? What is the chance two of them will have the same birthday? Uh, because uh, they have the one is their the birth control, other one is the the male control, right? What? That's uh, two rooms that are uh, born in the different uh, uh, ages, right? No, no. You have 367 people in a room. What is the chance that any two of them will have the same birthday? Just the same oh, date. Oh, they, they are uh, they, they, they are twins. They are one of birth twins. They have the birth ages and one of birth month, right? No, I think you're misunderstanding. Okay, we'll, we'll try someone else. <clears throat> okay, they, the question is straightforward. If you have 367 people in a room, what is the chance of two having the same birthday? Oh, I see a number of people have texted in the answer. The answer, of course, is 100%. Why? Because you only have 365 days in a year, so that if you have 367 people, two of them at least must have the same birthday, right? All right, that was that was pretty easy. <clears throat> well, we're coming up uh, towards Halloween, where there's going to be a lot of bewitching. Is there anything more closely associated with Halloween than a broom, a black cat, and a witch's pointy hat? And uh, 
Is there a better time to investigate the connection between witchcraft and science than uh, in October when we're looking forward to Halloween? You know, it's part of human nature to try to rationalize illness and misfortune. Today, many point accusing fingers at pesticides, food additives, electromagnetic radiation, perfluoroalkyl substances as possible culprits in undermining our health. In less sophisticated times, witchcraft was deemed to be responsible. Natural disasters and sicknesses were due to spells cast by those in league with the devil. Then as now, people feared what they did not understand, and they did not understand witchcraft. Witches did exist. Perhaps it is more accurate to say that people labeled as witches did exist. Who were they? Mostly women who were denied access to education and began to dabble in a strange mix of botany, primitive pharmacology, and superstition. They blended herbs, plants, and animal parts in bubbling cauldrons to produce medicines, love potions, or poisons as needed. Some of the ingredients could indeed cure, kill, or distort reality. And so it is not surprising that witches were held both in awe and fear. The superstitious medieval mind readily accepted suggestions that human misery was due to the casting of evil spells. Why? Because at least they could do something about it. People felt that their destiny was in their hands. Witches could be searched out, done away with, and thereby the spell would be lifted. From the 15th to the 17th century, some 200,000 innocent people were burned, drowned, or tortured to death with the hope of relieving the world from suffering. Since it was believed that witches could change into black cats, even these unfortunate creatures were hunted down and killed. This had the consequence of increasing the rat population and spreading the plague. Since the plague was supposed to be the work of witches, more unlucky people were accused, rounded up, and annihilated. In Spain, during the Inquisition, suspected witches were forced to wear conical pointed hats so that they could be instantly identified. This likely gave rise to the common stereotype of the witch in the black pointed hat. The boiling cauldron, immortalized by Shakespeare in Macbeth, was an appropriate symbol for witchcraft. It was here that the various magical ingredients were blended. In reality, the likely components were belladonna, henbane, mandrake, or monkshood, instead of eye of newt or toe of frog. These contain compounds such as atropine and aconitine, which in the right dose can produce various physiological effects, ranging from death to the sensation of flying. In the 15th century, drawings began to depict nude witches astride their broomsticks, flying through the air. According to some historians, this image was suggested by the practice of rubbing a broomstick with belladonna extract and maneuvering it in such a way that the active hallucinogenic ingredient, atropine, would be absorbed into the bloodstream through the sensitive genital tissues. So, in a fashion, witches really did fly. And why did witches travel on broomsticks? 
Well, because they were scared of horses, of course. Actually, any reminder of horses scared them off. And thus horseshoes gained an undeserved reputation as instruments of good luck. Even Lord Nelson nailed a horseshoe to the mast of his ship, the Battle of Trafalgar, to ensure that he would not be bewitched. Well, didn't work too well for him, did it? Uh, Lord Nelson, of course, was killed in the Battle of Trafalgar. But there were some positive spin-offs from witchcraft as well. One of the plants often found in a witch's brew was foxglove, otherwise known as witch's bells. This was supposed to invigorate the heart. In the 18th century, the British physician William Withering investigated the folk remedies concocted by a local woman who was regarded by some as a witch and identified foxglove as the active ingredient. Soon, its extract, known as digitalis, was being used to treat heart disease. And this remnant of witchcraft has stayed with us to this day. Digitalis is still used. <clears throat> of course, patients suffering from congestive heart failure are not told to go out and graze in a field of foxglove. The plant is grown, it is harvested, and pharmaceutical companies extract the active ingredient. Turns out to be a compound of digoxin. And of course, that can be standardized and given in the appropriate dose. Unfortunately, a belief in witchcraft still exists in some parts of the world today. In Nigeria, segment of the population still believes that witches have magical powers, that they can fly at night and transform into animals. Innocent people accused of witchcraft have been blamed for causing sudden death, disease, impotence, strong winds, and drought. And indeed, some human minds indeed still seem to be bewitched. It's a very sad story. Of course, uh, there's also the story of Salem, Massachusetts, 1692, uh, which of course is a classic event in American history when 21 people were accused by some young girls of being witches. <clears throat> and purely based upon their accusations, these people were executed. Uh, 20 of them were hanged, and one unfortunate man was killed by stones being piled on his chest until he suffocated. Why did this happen? Well, books have been written about this, about, you know, uh, was it some sort of mass hallucination uh, from uh, a fungus that grows on rye, uh, which uh, contains a compound called lysergic acid, a close relative of LSD, lysergic acid diethylamide. And uh, was it possible that the little girls, because of their body size, uh, were more affected by this hallucinogen than others, and it was the hallucinations that resulted in this. Nobody really knows. Anyway, that's it for today. Uh, I hope we put a focus on chemistry during this National Chemistry Week. We'll be back with you same time, same station next week. Until then, I'm Joe Schwartz, hoping all the chemistry in life comes out just right. <laughs>